Welcome to the High Stakes Deals Podcast. My name is Brandon Locascio, the host, and this is the podcast where we dissect high stakes deals and try to throw a little entertainment value in the mix. I'm here today with Mr. Kevin Pratt. How are you, my friend? So fine. Thank you for having me, Brandon. My pleasure. I know we've been trying to put this together for a little bit of time, right? Absolutely. Finally, we have a chance to make it happen. So before we get into it too much, so you're sitting where right now? You're sitting in a car. Where, where in the world is Kevin Pratt right now? Well, right now I'm sitting in a car and uh, in Woodland Hills, California, just kind of looking at observing some of the real estate assets that have been uh, affected by uh, the COVID uh, impacts. And so I'm in a parking lot where it used to be a, uh, a movie theater and a, and a mall. It's called the Promenade Mall, and it's deserted. So um, I haven't been here uh, in L.A. for quite some time since the COVID impact, but it's interesting to see just how vulnerable uh, the real estate industry, you know, just not just in, in here and uh, in the Wooden Hill, but by and large across the across America, how vulnerable a lot of these assets were to disruption. Yeah, and, and you don't really think about it from that standpoint. I think the average person drives around and they see a, a big office building, they see a, a, a restaurant, a mall, a this, a that, a movie theater or whatever, and they assume, okay, it's well-financed, it's owned by some huge company, like nothing can ever change, right? But interesting, I think this whole pandemic was a reminder of just how um, easy the system is, if you will, to be disrupted in that in that regard. Absolutely, it, it, it totally reshaped how I uh, think about the design build of mixed-use uh, assets, which I focus on. I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about that in the, in the podcast. It even helped me see, you know, some of the areas where that needed to be addressed in my planning uh, program so that if uh, future events, uh, hopefully not, but if it were, you know, interruptions to the internal systems would be able to run more on a resilient basis and operate efficiently. Which is a great point. It's almost like we're living a real uh, a set of case studies right now on this whole situation, right? Absolutely, right. Back in a few years, there'll be, there'll be something probably written about this, like the great case studies of the 2020 uh, pandemic, right? So, by the way, Kevin, so I thought I was the only one that drove around for fun and just stared at real estate. And, uh, you know, I do this from time to time. I do it with my fiance sometimes in the car and I drive her crazy because we've got to go do something, especially if it's her day off and I'm with her. I'm like, hey, babe, hold on, let's go look at this this housing development or let's go look at this piece of land. You uh, you drive around, look at a lot of land or what? Is that something you really enjoy? Oh, I love it. I actually focus on developing raw land into a mixture from entitlement assets. So I, I typically go out and uh, I created a model called Dev 4.0. It is designed in response to California's affordable housing, but I actually designed the model to be a force that could be uh, developed in any marketplace. You know, and I know some areas where you have uh, high heat, uh, you know, extreme like in Las Vegas mm -hmm. and, and in extreme cold weather like you have uh, in New York and in New Jersey and those climates. But I think from economically speaking, that the DEV 4.0 uh, model that utilizes modular technology I can really look at not only how to maximize uh, the land in terms of its efficiency, but also the building efficiency. And once you have the certain variables uh, that you consider, 
and you build the model off of, you know, let's say 50% or below mm. of the, an area's uh, medium income, there were some interesting things that I was able to discover and was able to test mathematically. And I'm very excited to do my first project here, which is staged to be in Las Vegas. Wow. For those of us, for people that might be listening, going, okay, modular, right? So like to unpack that for a second. So modular, what do you mean by that? Do you mean a mobile home? Do you mean a, a home built in a warehouse or an offsite facility and it's mostly put together and they come drop it on a piece of land? Or what does modular mean in this context? Well, thank you for asking. That's a good question because a lot of people don't really understand uh, the modular technology because typically when you hear modular, kind of like when you hear affordable housing, you think of housing that's uh, low quality. But modular is actually uh, an extraordinary technology that I've been a fan of for the last five years. Um, it's a technology where you actually, you're building uh, the units or the building offsite, okay? Yeah. Using the same high quality materials that you would do onsite as traditional development has been uh, conducted. But to think that there's some advantages that you get from modular that you could not get, at least in my opinion, from traditional building. Number one is the time savings that occurs with modular. Um, traditional stick build is about 18 months. You know, let's say an apartment, a mid-rise apartment typically takes you about, you know, 18 months with construction. And then yeah. again, you have to remember, you have to, there's a leasing period that follows after that. Of course. But with modular on average, you know, the research indicates that you can cut that time in half. So you can see just in terms of the time efficiency with uh, modular, in terms of how much interest could be saved than traditional because you're able to get people in a building and able to start making money so instead of paying all that interest over that time. So that's one advantage. The other advantages of modular has to do with a lot of what I call project efficiency. Project efficiencies can come in terms of going to the uh, city. Some of these efficiencies can also be applied to the traditional model as well. But what I find more strategic with modular is that the, you can get a design that could be standardized. That's one of the big things that the term you hear is a standardized development, meaning that you can create a system that can be replicated and replicated. And if you can create a high quality system that can be replicated, then your cost traditionally will go down on a per unit basis. And that's something that's really important when you're talking about addressing affordable housing in areas like New York and in California and high places of LA and San Francisco where land cost is just so egregious that it makes it nearly impossible to make things affordable. And so having some of these project efficiencies, the design efficiencies, having a city that's willing to work with a developer to fast track entitlements and approvals adds to further the reduction in the cost on the total development that helps make uh, housing uh, more affordable for those, uh, you know, working class and uh, seniors. It makes total sense. And being a, a builder, developer as well, right? We understand that time is probably the your biggest gift or curse, depending on which side you end up being on it. But But you're exactly right. When you can systemize something, if these products and these you know, if it's walls, if it's, if it's pieces of the roof, if it's joists, if it, you know, whatever it is, right. And they're being constructed almost like a, a car rolling down an assembly line in a, in some beautiful factory somewhere. And it's being shipped 
onto the site and everybody knows exactly this floor plan is always the same, this floor plate's always the same, these walls are always the same, whatever it is, you're exactly right. At the end of the day, you can have a product that could be uh, less expensive in terms of the final sales price to the buyer, uh, less expensive as far as the lease rate. Yeah, because you can mass produce. You mass produce. You can mass produce and you can, you can put on, and I'm talking about high quality. I'm not talking about when I say modular, we're substituting something in terms of to make housing affordable using cheaper you know materials no i'm talking about using very high quality uh materials and finishes and uh but not so much as you know looking at it in terms of reducing you know those quality components that go into the traditional model right um making those substitution no we're using high quality stuff we can use lower quality. Uh, when I say lower quality, I mean, we don't have to use union labor. You right. know, so that adds an expense. So we can use unskilled labor to accomplish basically putting a legal system together. And so these are the things that I see that modular can add uh, the cost advantages, you know, waste, right. you know, which is a big aspect of uh, a traditional, you don't get that type of waste in modular. Go to any job, right? Go to our job down the street where we're building the 89 condos. And, you know, if it's the framer, if it's the concrete man, if it's the whomever, we're going to get ready to start doing drywall soon. And you'll see tons of waste that will be on the site. And inevitably, we'll be throwing, you know, the excess material away on a continual basis. So that, And I didn't really think about that. And one thing I was thinking about was, see, me even being in the business, knowing probably very little about, you know, this type of product, but knowing enough, you know, when I've seen, I've seen this type of modular product or if I've heard it being discussed, I've always associated it more with like houses. Like in other words, I'll give you an example. There was a building company they sold. I, I think they sold the William Law a year or two ago, but RSI Homes, Ron Simon, he was a big cabinet manufacturer. And because he had these facilities making cabinets, he had a whole building division, RSI Homes, and they were putting out, I don't know how many homes, maybe a thousand or two thousand a year. Maybe I'm off, maybe it's five hundred a year, but I think they got to be a nice regional size builder, which is why the general William Lyons company, you know, purchased them. But all of their homes, you would drive down a neighborhood, it looked like Pulte or Lennar or anybody else built these homes. I mean, there's no difference. But they were largely off site and plopped down, right? And, and that's for lack of a better description, plopped down, but but there it was. And and so for me. When I think of modular, right, the system product, I think of like, okay, maybe that's something you can do for one off, you know, a production of 10 houses or 100 houses. But I've never seen personally, and maybe I'm just out of the loop, but I haven't seen a lot of people yet doing it for like three, four, five story, mid rise condo apartment type buildings. But I think it's fabulous and I'd love to see more of it. And I'd love for us as a GC to get involved with it because I, I do agree it's probably in some part the way of the future. Absolutely. It, I do. I really believe it's the way of the future, the way we need to be designed. And, but it's just going to be those. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with uh, you know other developers who want to stay with a traditional model because they feel that it's such a learning curve and they they already made you know lots of money and they've put out lots of units. So why reinvent the wheel? Yeah. And we start thinking about climate change, we start thinking about affordability, we start thinking about, you know, high land costs, you know, you start thinking about how can you do something faster in less time and least expensive, then you have to take a look at modular and how all the mechanic and the mechanism, because it's going to add to the bottom line, you know, especially in areas where there's just, where housing is needed in California, which is a focus area of my 
uh, professional career as well as in the the Nevada marketplace. Mm -hmm. And uh, which is why I'm using the first model. I'm creating the first model in Henderson, Nevada to show this replicable model that can be demonstrated in any city. And so um, that's, that's really what the the power of modular development. And um, to me, it's just going to make just more sense to do that in high cost areas. I don't know much about it, but I'll drink the Kool-Aid. I think it's fabulous. I mean, I, I would love to, like I said, even from a GC standpoint, I'd love to see our company get involved. You and I are young men, young men. Come on, man. Let's, let's get out there and let's hope let's we get, out there. get me on the frontier on the front lines for the, the new modular builders. Come on, let's go do hey, it in the next uh, 10 years. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> oh man. Kevin, let me ask you though, just to kind of rewind back up and zoom out for two seconds. So, so, I want to ask the question why real estate, but I even want to ask the question before that, you know, what, what were you doing 20, 30, 40 years ago? I won't go any farther. I don't know, but the, the number, but where'd you grow up? I think you grew up in LA. Tell me how, how you grew up, where you grew up, where you went to school. Start maybe with something around there. Well, I grew up in, I'm a native of uh, South Central Los Angeles. Okay. Uh, I graduated from Crenshaw High School. Um, didn't really have can't really tell you how I graduated, but, you know, at that time, I didn't really need much, you know, it was a below a 2.0. And so, but I've, uh, since I was early on and as a kid, young kid, I've been very enamored about development and buildings and in the function and how they work. And, uh, and I just love development. And, and so as I, you know, saw the, the issues that were plaguing in, you know, Los Angeles, you know, living in these, you know, derelict environments that uh, were replete with, um, you know, uh, pollution and environmental degradation and, you know, the lack of, you know, uh, you know, integral public policy. The environment is ju- was just not that, you know, good on a lot of people and still in some areas in South Central Los Angeles, it's not that, you know, some of places are getting better, uh, but uh, packed in in the 80s, is it was really um, very challenging times for, you know, living uh, as a minority in, in, in a minority community. But I always had a uh, such a drive that, Jer- you know, I always referred to Jerry Rice because he was a guy that looked up and I played football and had a chance to train with him. But I see myself in the same manner, the way Jerry Rice approaches, the way he approached football uh, when he was playing, the way I approach development today. I do it 12 hours a day. I feel that I've been gifted with uh, the development talent to go out here and be a public servant on behalf of humanity and the environment to make life better uh, for for the whole world. And so starting with this first uh, development project, but I've been enamored. I mean, development is the only thing I've ever known besides uh, a little bit of football background. The only thing I've ever done in terms of I never – held a significant job. I've only been uh, trying building my my career and barely my knowledge up in real estate development. And so I do want to ask you about the football and, and I want I'm curious if, what your 40 time was if you had that because maybe you and I could race but you're gonna have to give me like a big head start. Okay, because I was yeah, no. but, <laughs> but so growing up, okay, so you're enamored with real estate. Was that because you had people that you looked up to that were in real estate? Or was it more that social and economic like things around you in your environment that you saw where you said, man, there's got to be a better way for us all to like, live and cohabitate and exist in the in these communities versus like how how these buildings are and, and everything is at the moment 
I mean, did you have people in, in the business that you knew? I didn't, I think it was, but it was a combination mm-hmm. of some influence, but mainly uh, it was just my own drive. It's what I, I feel I was born to, to do and it's my calling and my mission in life and my passion and my purpose. And uh, I'm a late bloomer. I didn't grow up in a development family. I just loved it and just why I went back to school to become educated so I can make intelligent choices for the, as a public servant of the, of the built environment. But I would have to say that Jerry Rice was a big part of that because without having the discipline and the drive and the commitment that I still do today and I still work out, I don't think I would have made it because uh, as a developer, you're already coming out of a challenged environment. It was just, I think it would just been too much to overcome. Right. But uh, football, and seeing someone that today I still think could uh, become a uh, Super Bowl champion and a wide receiver champion today um, because of his influence. I took that and just sort of turned it into a development model for myself and used that high standard to patent myself behind that. And uh, Gary was a big part of my life. And one day, uh, matter of fact, when I started my company, um, I'm, a, uh, I'm, I'm creating a new company called Yak 80, Yards After the Catch. And the Yak 80, the mission and purpose is, is to create affordable mixed-use assets for, for the workforce and seniors. But it's going to have the first development firm that really looks at it from being like an NFL organization. We just don't have a football team. We have a development team. But the sort of the same playbook that you know, Bill Walsh and Joe Montana and Jerry Rice used to go out there and execute to win the championship, the Super Bowl, the same kind of playbook that I'm going to make and I'm building right now with some, some very uh, some significant individuals to create that yak 80 yards after the catch uh, playbook and yards after the catch. Really, it's about, you know, the, the real nuts and bolts of it is what do you do after you give in? the ball in your head. For a developer, what, once you've been given a piece of land, once you've been given that opportunity, that seed money, what are you going to do with it now? Are you going to turn it into a 95-yard touchdown? Or are you going to catch it and fumble? You know, or are you going to catch it and, you know, get a few yards, but you don't finish? Yak 80 is about taking the ball once it hits your hand and going 95 yards to score with it. And so that's the kind of the philosophy wow. that uh, new firm that I'm uh, innovating will be patent behind. I want to hear more about that. And I want to go back to high school. So you played football in high school, I would assume then. Okay. Yeah, I played football at uh, Crenshaw High School. Okay. And I was able, I was the number one receiver on my team. I was able to make all, you know, all conference and uh, city accolades. I ran track. Okay. Uh, one of my uh, good friends is Quincy Watts. I ran against him in, in high school. True story, we were in, uh, Quincy had been struggling that year and with a hamstring pull. And we first met up in the city, uh, I think it was the quarterfinals. And uh, up until that time, he had only run like 40, a uh, 48-1, still bothering, hampered by a hamstring pull. And uh, I was about 48s and uh, about high 48s. And so when we got into the quarterfinals, and you know, Quincy Watts was the Olympic gold medalist in the 400. Wow. Um, and he's uh, ran 
But back then when we, I didn't know that this guy was gonna come because he had that same passion that I have for development for track. And uh, we got into the race, man, uh, we were tied coming off the, uh, coming off the stretch there, that last 100. Uh, and, and that last 50 yards, boom. You smoked? Yeah, that was sort of the, the yak 80. <laughs> Richie took the yak 80, man. You know what I mean? He broke the city record that, that day. Wow. And I even ended up running my fastest ever was into the 47s. And it was a great time. And so it's that kind of, I've been exposed to being around and seeing a lot of uh, championship uh, performances that really have really molded the, the way I think about development today. Well, I think you touched on it, you know, being a developer or maybe any business person, but especially developer, because you have these long periods of time where these deals don't get done overnight, right? And so you have to have that like mental fortitude for lack of a better term. You have to have that perseverance to get up every day and get your butt kicked a little bit, and keep going and going like that drop of water. Right. And I think that a athletes who part you know who reach a certain level or who are able to obtain a certain level of success right they they share that same mental perseverance you have to because yeah. it's so competitive and you're and you're always faced with that next challenge and by the way the 400 it's one lap around right because, one lap around because in track you have like you could sprint the 100 yards that's right the short yards, and then you got one lap yeah. okay so but but that's tough because even like a straight 100 meters Right, hundred yard dash. Excuse me. I mean, that's that'll take it out of you. But to go a whole four hundred around the track, I mean, you're you're just all out. I mean, to hit sub fifty seconds, you're all out. You're all out, and 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 it challenges your mental uh, fortitude, your mental uh, toughness. Mm -hmm. Four hundred is a bear. You got to stay in. By the way, I'm just curious if I, I I'm trying to think if I ever watched one of those late races up close, but. Is everybody in their own lane? Do you try to get in that middle lane? Are you allowed to kind of crisscross a little bit? Or are you kind of... Well, in the individual races, you're in, you stay in your lane. When you get into the, the relays, gotcha. and like the 400-meter re, uh, relay, uh, is when you can you start switching lanes and things of that, and things of that nature. Gotcha. I'm glad I was a 400-meter runner. Uh, it's part of my toughness to today. And but one thing I want to share real quick uh, before you I move to the next topic here, Brandon, is that... Uh, when you look at Jerry Rice, when you look at Michael Jordan, when you look at the Kobe Bryant's, Tom Brady's of the world, these guys, when they were coming up, experienced a lot of failure, which a lot of times we don't, you know, highlight a lot because of all we see is all the greatness they've done. But there's been a lot, you know, Michael Jordan said there was a, he failed thousands of times before he was able to succeed. And it was that failure that allowed him to succeed. And, and I've heard Kobe say many times how he failed and things of that nature. And so I failed in real estate development and uh, uh, trying to get off um, the, the, the ground. A lot of my failure became because of lack of knowledge. Uh, I didn't have the masters and I'm in a PhD program now that's development related. I didn't have mentors. I didn't have people showing me how the, the, the proper steps. I had Jerry Rice of football so I can look at him and emulate what sort of way and how to think about being a receiver, never development. So I'm truly self-taught. And so all the way to the point that I've learned over time, that I've learned from some of the most successful real estate developers that I have been, uh, had a chance to be around 
to mold my game, you know, with that, that yak mentality that it has enabled me to create the Dev4 models called Development 4.0 model that I feel and a lot of people feel because it's been modeled mathematically could be a game changer uh, for the affordable housing industry, especially in high markets in California. If you had to, because I'm just curious about so real estate developers, right? We both know a lot of real big real estate developers. You're a real estate developer. We're developers. So, but but the guys, the guys and gals that are really big time, right? The real big successful, you know, whoever. What traits do you think they typically share? Maybe even a trait that, because like, I'm trying to think, like a trait that maybe most people would be surprised. Uh, uh, you could think of the obvious. Maybe they work a lot. They don't sleep a lot. They you know, they have a lot of good attorneys around them maybe, and I don't know, but, but what do you think that makes a really good real estate developer or even just a trait that a lot of these guys and gals have that, that maybe people wouldn't think of? I think to be just like in any sport, you know, a doctor or an attorney or an engineer, you have to work, you have to practice. Uh, I'm a workhorse. Um, I put in, you know, 10 hour days in real estate development. I think you have to be a student of it. You have to you have to have that kind of passion. You have to love it. I mean, I love it. When I say I love it, I am in love with ground up real estate development. And I'm so in love with it that, you know, to be able, uh, I'm getting ready to go to the next level of the passion to see people inhabit buildings that I create and otherwise in certain markets would not be able to afford it. So to see, to have rents that are uh, way below market but they live in a very high quality building and to see the buildings that are resilient to any kind of, you know, COVID or, or some kind of uh, economic on a macro level disruption that, that these buildings will stand or have the ability to stand the test of time. And there'll be buildings that'll be highly uh, grailed after and, and, and sought after and because of their environmental efficiency their cost efficiency, their design, they're beautiful. These are sexy buildings that I call the athletic buildings. I'm building athletic buildings that model the same type of the Yak 80. You know, I don't know if you have a firm familiar of the way Jerry approaches the game, but it's the uniform. In terms, you know, the 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 new pants and the the, the helmet shining and the the way Jersey has to be and tucked in and and the meticulous nature of the of how Jerry puts on a uniform. I take that same approach mm. to how the building design. I want the buildings that I design won't be, even though they'll be standardized in terms of the programming components of it, but they'll be unique in terms of design. You won't be able to say, oh, I've seen that building. Uh, that's the same building that uh, Kevin Pratt created over in Woodland Hills or in Las Vegas. Or, no, each building will have its own character, its own personality its own flavor, its own flair, its own, you know, different offering so that when people live here, they're like, man, I'm living in a unique building. There's no other building like this in the world, you know, in terms of the style and the flair and what it offers. And, and um, I'm the kind of guy that, you know, when you inhabit a building, one of my buildings, I want to meet the tenants. I want to be there. I want to know what's right, what's going wrong. Because, you know, I look at these buildings are corporations. You know, that you got to look at them at this point. You have to take care of these people. Mm-hmm. You have to make sure that their well-being, that their air quality is at its highest level and that they're, they're, they're living in, in one of the most efficient green buildings in the world 
under the Living Building Challenge certification, which I'm, by the way, I'm certified under that uh, certification. So I wanna bring the best that the, from the materials, from the affordability, from the technology that's utilized and the financing and the, the underwriting uh, of these buildings has to offer so that I can help greatest amount of people live well, live better, and they'd be happy. I see that, Kevin, in your theme. Your theme is hard work, you're passionate, and and you keep going back to that without even trying to be a mission statement, if you will. Just you talk, it's like, I want to help, I want to help, I want to make people happy, give them a nice place to live. I think it's really cool. I mean, that's really something special that more offers probably should have, right? I think that's a good time for that type of focus. I want to ask you about this just quickly. So you played football in high school. Then you went on to be, were you playing uh, uh, football after high school? I ended up going to community college, El Camino College. There, uh, we, I was the number one wide receiver. I made first team all honors there and all st state as a freshman. We lost the national championship game. We were playing number one versus number two. And then um, I ended up, my career made a few, you know, not, thoughtful business decisions and I end up going to uh, Chico State University, which then I end up at Arena Football. Arena Football. And uh, in 94. What wasn't Kurt, Kurt Warner was in the Arena Football League, wasn't he? Before he got picked? He was, he came either a year or two after. Okay. And uh, I came in 94 and uh, I, I was number one receiver in the league. I set the all time, wow. uh, single season, 1,387 yards. Man. We had uh, 86 touchdowns, I mean, 86 receptions. That's a lot of yardage, man. That's yeah, good. yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> a lot of yardage, and I was able to score 23 touchdowns, and that was the catalyst that led me, uh, got my ticket and opportunity in 96 um, to play with the uh, Philadelphia Eagles, John Gruden. Wow. Uh, I've been knowing him since I was at uh, El Camino College, he recruited me when I was at, when he was actually an officer coordinator for University Pacific. That guy's a great guy. I love that guy. When I think of Gruden, I think of, uh, was he, I know he's been the Raiders coach, right? And he's also done, was, was he Tampa Bay coach for a while? Tampa Bay coach? Well, he started at uh, UOP, as, as far as I know. Okay. He came over to my house, uh, met my family, and uh, back in uh, 89, and uh was trying to recruit me as the as his um, you know receiver up at UOP, which is University of Pacific up in Northern California. Uh, I didn't end up going, but uh, I kept the relationship. Had a lot of respect for him. His brother as well. I played in '97 with uh, Jay Gruden, and he was the offensive coordinator. I was a specialist there, and so he ended up being the head coach of the Washington Redskins. Mm -hmm. And so he was instrumental. It was actually Jay that was instrumental that connected us. We were working out in, in uh, St. Petersburg, Florida. He was the one that connected me back with John. And uh, I went out there, had a great workout. And he's a great guy, man. He signed me. And uh, he's still a great guy today. I have a lot of respect for the Gruden family. And I just wish him all the success that you ever have because they believed in me way back then. And so I just have a, a lot of love for the Gruden family. What was that like, though, right? So, I mean, you know, I mean, that that might be every kid's dream, right? Most kids. I mean, if, if kids have a dream in life as far as what they want to be when they grow up, I like probably the most, you know, the, the, the one you would see the most would be like a, a professional football player, professional basketball player, professional baseball player, right? Because kids love sports. We like sports. Like, you grow up and you just see these guys up here and doing all these things, right? So, so 
when you got, I mean, you'd already had success in when you got signed to an NFL team. I mean, was that like a surreal experience where you like holding the pin and you're like, Oh, I just signed this damn thing. Like how, how did that feel? Yeah. I believe that I was going to get into the NFL. I, I, I would pray every day. I'm a Christian. I would pray to God. I would just thank God that, you know, I believe I'm going to get into the NFL. I, I believe I deserve to be there. Mm-hmm. At least have an opportunity to show, you know, John made it happen for me. He was the actually, the office of coordinator and Ray Rose was, was the actual head coach. And, and I ended up getting injured. I had a knee injury. I, I couldn't do it, man. And I couldn't even move. And, and it was challenging because I, I came into training camp. I had a great first few days of training camp and going deep, catching bombs. And, you know, I would, I would really like to see that practice film the first day of training camp. Rodney Pete was there. Boy, he's a great guy. Rodney Pete, good friend of mine as well. But it really was a surreal. But I believe I belong there. And I was looking forward to the challenge of hopefully getting a chance to, to go up against a Deion Sanders. Because if you're not going up against the best talent, Right. You know, Deion Sanders to me was the best. He's still the best uh, defensive back to ever live. And you want to go up against that. You want to see what you're made of. Man. And, you know, and it didn't happen. And that was very disappointing for me. Deion Sanders was prime time, right? Wasn't that his thing? Prime time. That's prime time. Oh, baby, prime time. <laughs> That's prime time, baby. <laughs> no, I. so, I mean, in a way, because you – we're already mentally wired that way. It wasn't as, I mean, if, if I'm hearing correctly, it wasn't like, oh my God, I made it to the NFL. It was like, yeah, I'm supposed to be in the NFL. I've worked my ass off my whole life. Here I am. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, what else? Let me get on the field. Let's go. I was ready to go. And, and that's, the, that's the same summer I actually trained with Jerry Rice. I wanted to do everything perfect. And, you know, I remember it was so funny. I remember right before we were getting ready to, you know, I had a great workout with him. And it was like the last play, I think Steve Bono was out there. And I said, Steve, I want to end my day on a deep route. Right. So we end up going a deep route. I'm flying down the field, catch a deep route. Right. So as I'm jogging back, I see Jerry Rice. He come back. He said, I got to head that same thing. Oh, no, no, no. He had to head the last one. I'm like, man, that was awesome, man. He just had to have, he would not end the day with me or anybody, for that matter, you know, uh, getting the last play uh, for the day. So that's showing you the competitiveness uh, of what it takes to be great in anything. And I have that same type of drive and competitiveness in, in development. And development, really, that's my calling. Football was just, I had the discipline. I couldn't do, be what I am without the football part, right. you know, and I didn't know that at the time because I was really playing football because I, I didn't know any kind of way to get money legally to get money and to do it above board and to do it based on, you know, the sweat off my back, you know, and I ended up achieving a lot uh, in football, but it was really a prelude to my real calling and that is to be hopefully a world developer. What was the 40 time? Bust out a number, man. I played in high school. I was not very good, but I was a wide receiver thing. But I'm trying to remember like what my 40 time would have been at the, it was like, you know, four, six or four, five or four, four or four. I'm just pulling random numbers out because I don't know what is a good 40 time. And, and by the way, what was your 40 time? Good 40 time. I'm going to speak for more of a position wise yeah. as a wide receiver. I ran on grass four three zero on grass. And, you know, the grass was manicured. It was tight. It looked like NFL grass. And um, I blazed it. I was ready. You remember, I was a track guy. 
Uh, yeah. So I ran the four. I ran that four hundred. So I had a lot of stamina. Right. So I didn't really have. I think what made me run faster because I'm, I wasn't fast like you know Bolt coming off the blocks or some of the guys that I know like Curtis Conway, right. Quincy Boss that they you know they had like ten one hundred yard meters. I probably couldn't run faster than ten four. But these guys were a lot faster. But the quarter mile uh, stamina. Right. Allows me to hold speed much longer. You can get so, the, then you can get down the field and, and I can get down the field. Yeah. I can get down the field and I, you know, it doesn't help hurt, I should say, to have a, a few of Jerry Rice his moves in there, his post moves in there to get you to get you uh, free up. <laughs> <laughs> hey, by the way, and we'll move on to the next, but I just wanna so when it comes to a receiver, what do you think? Is it more important their quickness or is it more important uh I don't know, having hands, right? Like, I mean, I feel like most receivers, especially if you get to that level, you're pretty much catching everything anyway. But is it more important to catch every single ball that gets thrown at you, or is it more important to be quick? When I say quick, I don't mean just fast and straight line, but, you know, these receivers got to go and then drop the DB, turn around, hit the next route. You know, I mean, right, that's – what would you say? Well, uh, to be honest, I, I really have to say you got to catch the football. Yeah. You got to catch the football. I would catch 300 footballs a day. And I would catch them at different angles. Uh, Jerry Rice would – speak about the the pinky to pinky and the noose catches and yeah the, uh, the noose and then in the pinky to pinky so i mastered that you know i just i, I would catch so many footballs to my hands would hurt and i bet even today yeah. because of so much seed went into that that i can catch the football you know with some with some accuracy here uh maybe can you run the four three oh or maybe a four five oh that's <laughs> damn you know but I have eight or a seven. Yeah. So, but, <laughs> but I would focus. I would focus more on, you know, being efficient right. at catching the football mm -hmm. and understanding where, as a receiver, where the pockets need to be. Working with a quarterback like Montana or Brady, if you, you know, a slower receiver, and not a blazer, I would really work on uh, playing football with my mind, finding areas that me and the quarterback can exploit, you know, and really working that out and uh, to become, you know, very efficient at catching the football, which helps move the football down the field. Wow. Let me ask the, the obvious from there then, Kevin. So started with your passion in real estate and development. We kind of went, you know, backward in time to, to football and growing up and things of that nature. So at what point do you go from, is it the injury that says, hey, maybe I should go back to my, that childhood passion of real estate that I've always like just obsessed about and loved and have been passionate about for whatever reason? Or, or do you get involved with some people at some point? And, and how fast does it happen? I'm assuming when, when the injury happened with Philadelphia, what were you, 22, 25, 28, 6? 26. 26. So then that happened. Do you take some time to figure out what you want to do? Do you go, hey, I'm going to go right into real estate development? Or how does that, what do you, what's your next move? That's a great, great question. A lot of people, you know, uh, asked about my transition uh, from football to development. Very disappointing uh, uh, 96 season. Right. Um, you know, it, it really, I saw my, at that time, I saw my development dream my passion, development dream, kind of go down the drain because, I mean, even though I went to arena football, it was more I was using it to get back to the NFL mm -hmm. to show that I can be healthy, I can be effective, 
Um, it didn't happen. I ended up getting injured again, in my shoulder. Mm. Um, as I, the coach had really had me set up to go uh, probably to Buffalo to get my second shot, but it didn't happen. I got injured. And so that was another blow. And so these blows really, it was in 1999. I remember actually 1998, I was in New York. Just, uh, I was playing with the uh, New York City Hawks at that time. And I was, you know, pretty much trying to get, you know, I was trying to hang on to see if I can get one last shot at the NFL. It didn't work out. And I remember waking up at 4.30 in the morning and this real estate show was on and it was talking about at that time, you know, how to buy real estate with no money down and things of that nature. And it intrigued me. I was like, man, I got to do this. Right. This, is, this, is, this is my shot. And I say, if I don't play football, I'm going to buy real estate with no money down and I'm going to take that money and do development. And so lo and behold, I played one more year with Portland. And then from that point, I made the decision that I didn't, I didn't, I'm not going to play football anymore. I changed my strategy. My strategy was I decided to, to hang around architectural firms, uh, civil engineering firms, developers, just to sort of learn how buildings work, mm -hmm. you know, sort of learn how you finance, you know, an existing building. Uh, how do you buy a multifamily uh, building and things of that nature? So I did that for like all oh, for about five years, and I just because I was a saver, I saved the, a lot of the money that I had in the arena you know, yeah. and the settlement that I got from the NFL, and I used that to go out to pursue my passion, what I wanted to do. So I kind of challenged the way there, and no one told me had no hands to hold, I went out and made my way. I've always been that kind of guy. I'm yeah. not going to sit around and, and wait for somebody to, to inspire me. I'm already inspired. I'm already ready to go. And so I just want to be able to sit down the right people, pick their brain, take notes, like I'm watching film, and execute. And that's what I've been doing and for the last 20 years. And about the time I got to, I got into some internships. And those internships uh, allowed me uh, the opportunity to go back to school because uh, at that time I still hadn't had uh, no formal education and to really make something uh, out of my uh, career so that I don't have handicaps going in as I move down in development and not being able to be selected for a different position because they don't have a master. Right. You didn't have that educational. <laughs> Correct. That makes sense. I mean, I, I feel like I know a decent amount about lots of different aspects of development and building and, and real estate. And, you know, I've been in the business not for a long time, but for 15 years now, I'm 33. I started when I was 18. I got right into mortgages and did work as a realtor and flipped houses and commercial real estate sales. And now I have this construction company with Ivano for the last few years and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But the, you know, the point is, is like, you know, I still haven't learned what I don't know kind of thing. And, then, and when, when it comes to different areas, particularly tax credit deals, low income housing, I mean, I know like, like this much about any of that. And it's, and it's, I would like to know more because it's, it's intriguing, right? Like I, when I hear how some of these deals get done and I want to ask your input on this because 
first of all, is a tax credit deal the same thing as a low-income housing? Is that just an interchangeable term? If I say we're going to do a tax credit thing? Not necessarily, because I've created a model that can function the same way about tax credit. I am uh, highly skilled in tax credit, what they call uh, LIHTC, uh, low-income housing tax credit. Uh, I'm very uh, skilled in new market tax credits. Uh, the LIHTC tax credits really focus on just the housing aspect on it as uh, new market tax credits um, focus on the commercial side of it. But uh, tax credits have been uh, an, an amazing, an amazing subsidy to help uh, facilitate more uh, high cost housing to become affordable. The way I inter always understood it, Kevin, like in a nutshell, right? And again, I don't know if this is how I understand it is correct, but I always understood it to be, okay, so developer that's doing a low income, particularly if they're trying to get tax credit type deal, they'll identify a deal, they'll go out and they'll apply for all these different sources of money from either state agencies or government agencies or county agencies or whatever it may be, but they essentially get these tranches of money to help build this project. And this money comes available at either really low rates or really long terms or, you know, forbearance packages or whatever it is like deferment. I'm, you know, I'm throwing words out there, but the point is, is that they essentially get this government uh, agency money. They, ha they have to put very little of their own cash into the deal. They're maybe regulated on how much they can make, but they have like set margins. And their essentially model is to take this money, build this product so that it can be offered to, you know, tenants and buyers that are, that are in that low income bracket. And then they hold, if it's a rental, they hold on to it for X amount of years. And after 10 or 20 years, they refinance it with more government funds and start that circle kind of all over again. And anyway, that, that's my only exposure or what I understood is, is that type of building. And I don't know if that's just one slice of how things get done or if that's a general synopsis or not really on point, but uh, I'm curious as to your take on that. Yeah, well, you know, the light tech program, it has, you know, a lot of, you know, restrictions and things of that nature, how long the credits have to be in place and, and, and sort of those elements of it. But I think that, you know, it's just, it's one mechanism. They have on the light tech side of it, they have 4% and 9% credits. And typically the 9% credits are very, are very competitive. But now, you know, when you don't, to, it used to be when, you know, you didn't get the nine credits, you just default to the four. But now there's so many uh, affordable housing developers with their hands on the four credits. So now the four credits are becoming more and more, you know, sought after, which is just going to drive the demand up for the credit. From my point of view, it offers another question, let's just say raises another question of how uh, are we going to subsidize these credits? because we can't give them to everybody, well, because the state has a cap. This is where I think the Opportunity Zone uh, can become a real game changer, a subsidy with the light tech credit. And so developers in today's environment have to start looking at other mechanisms, buying land under market value in prime secondary markets and not taking advantage of a different, you know, development technology like modular and then looking at project design and efficiency that can come to the table to make housing, the cost of housing go down uh, so that it can be affordable without sacrificing quality. Without sacrificing, that's a key, right? Because just because you're going into a certain area or you're building a certain product type or you're going to lease to you know, a lower income or, or sell at a certain bracket, 
doesn't mean that the quality of the building should be any less uh, superior. I mean, and I agree with that. I mean, I, I a thousand percent, I think, every, I think that's how it should be. And I think hopefully that's how it will be going forward. And I think that these, these programs sort of help lend themselves to that. And, you know, I, I want to hear more about, so your particular, do you work by yourself? Do you have partners? You know, do you have an office? Are you mostly on the go? Is your car and your house the office, which might be the thing in COVID for most people anyway right now? But your model where you're going out, you're, you're hunting down land, you're putting, tying stuff up, and then you're trying to sell, you can finance it, and you're working on buildings. Like, what's, what's a day in the life of you and your company look like at the moment? What I've been doing is been spending the last few years trying to create an economic model that can be standardized and reproducible. And fortunately, I am so excited that I've, I've just finished it. It uh, took a lot of you know, mathematical training, because I have a, one of my degrees uh, is in mathematics, and I'm very pleased. Heavy on finance mixed with, you know, real estate uh, economics, and you know, in mathematics. Now, uh, I'm in my third, what I call troubleshoot, stressing the model mathematically, so that to see, okay, what happens if you lose, you know, a significant portion of your NOI? How does that reflect returns or the cap rates and things of that nature? Um, looking at what are the best ratios from for construction loan in terms of loan to cost? Is it 65-35 or is it 70-30? Uh, is it, you know, 50-50? Is right. it 80-20? You know, so I've found sort of where the optimal area that is given a certain uh, density, uh, a certain amount of units a certain amount of uh, land area as well. So the, all these fixed costs help drive the model. And so I'm going into my third iteration and, uh, you know, with my team and we've been very excited to see that this, what's gonna, uh, is gonna happen out here in Las Vegas. But typically I work with, I don't work alone. Developers don't work alone. I like to see that for every developer that works alone, I'll show you a building that never got built. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, developers work typically with a skilled and accomplished development team. This includes the city that you're working in being a part of that development team because they're part of, you know, the approvals and things of that nature. So you're going to need to have a political staff that's in agreement that supports the development that you're bringing to their community. And that is going to bring the kind of economic impact. Uh, not just for the city, but for the community. You also need to cre think about creating development that, that benefits the community. So I'm thinking about, you know, if some if, if a developer is new and going to come into my community, you know, who benefits? So you look at the equity aspects of it and not just the profit side of it, mm -hmm. even though that's, that's a big part of it. But you, tr you want to uh, try to meet the demands of the investors at the same time, create a development that's, that's socioeconomic components thriving as well right. you know you got to get that civil engineer you got to get your architect you got to get your your market analysis a lot of my data mostly all of the how i create the inputs i should say that go into the model that create these financial numbers are market driven so i use coast or real page i use firms like uh, myers research so i get highly reliable and reputable data to drive the model. So I don't just come up and say, oh, I think we should have 
650 square foot units. Right. I think our two bedrooms should be, uh, let me see, 1,100 square foot. Why? I just have a hunch that you big. No. Everything I do follows a playbook, a marketing playbook. So I look at the market and I look at the trends of the market for the past 10 years so that I can make informed decisions for the financiers mm-hmm. and for those private equity companies uh, and for the city and the community so that the development that I'm putting together will hit all of those buckets, which requires a developer to not get emotionally involved into the processes of the analysis part that would drive how you conduct and what unit mixes and what financing programs and what equity you should and what, you know, how high the, uh, the, 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 the development project should be or what the setbacks should be, or what the parking you know, ratio should be. Yeah. Those decisions are informed by market analysis. Do you think that a lot of developers maybe are too hasty? They go into deals quickly. This is what my gut tells me, or this is how I've done it before. Do you think that that's how maybe developers sometimes get, get you know, smacked on the butt kind of, so to speak, or they get their prize and the deal doesn't work out the way it should because they didn't? Because see, I, I know people that will say, okay, yeah, but sometimes you listen too much to these outside consultants, bean counters, you know, whatever you want to call them, right? Like you can listen too much to these analytics and you're not being gutsy enough to get ahead of a curve and maybe make a decision. I mean, when you look at information yourself personally, are there times where you go, yeah, this is what the analytics would say, but I might listen to this, this, and this, but I'm going to cancel out these couple of ones because I'm really feeling different with my gut. I mean, do you kind of pick and choose a little bit on how you maybe within reason, dissect that information? Absolutely. And, and the first part of your question about, you know, my gut feeling about the developers typically like get a lot of developers go out of their own way. I'm looking at empty buildings over here. Yeah. I'm looking at, you know, development that as a whole, different access classes like your retail, your offices, and some of your multifamily. When you look at that, COVID exposed a lot of that intuitional thinking that these developers have. And it comes from success. It comes from, you know, I know I can build in on that site, this market, I can build at a seven and I can sell at a five and a half. So I know I got five, 150 bips over the spread to cover my, I know that I can do it all the time because I got three other buildings that I've, you know, that, that I've built, that I've been performing with no problem. But the thing you have to, to realize is, yeah, you have a building that has been performing, but it's always been vulnerable. Right. Uh, because when you're cash flow, uh, you're endogenous, when I say, uh, components of your building, meaning the cash flows are hit, you know, and not able to pay. And your economic ratio drops significantly, then you're in trouble because you're not able either, you know, if you're not able to recover, you're looking probably looking at a foreclosure uh, component and all the equity being wiped out, you know, and if you are able to recoup a little bit, then the, the return from the investor returns are drastically altered 
Um, and sometimes, you know, just in the first year, you know, of a stabilized building, if you receive, let's say, a 6.7% drop in income could drastically, even with market growth, let's say 3.5%, would still take you years just to get back to that NOI, mm-hmm. that, that, that robust NOI before the drop uh, in year one. And so market data is there. It's not to tell you what to do. Mm. It's there to help you make decisions about how to go about your building. The market data is there to help you put together your risk management plan. You know, in the event that uh, a COVID situation that nobody thought COVID happened. Uh, who would have thought, right? And I think you made a nice distinction there. It's not there to tell you what to do. It's there to help guide you on, you know, making that informed decision. I have a really good, I mean, he's a pretty good friend. I, I would say he's a really good friend. We haven't talked in a while, but but he's a developer out in Phoenix, big, big developer in Phoenix, big, big landowner does, I mean, you know, pretty big deals. And I went and had a chance to stay with him for, I don't know, week, week and a half, a couple of years back at his beautiful, you know, large house in uh, Paradise Valley, I guess. And he took me around. We, you know, met various city council members and went to some real estate events and you know, we drive down the street and you point out buildings that he owned in Phoenix. And this guy's a really, but just down to earth, salt of their type guy can have a conversation with us like this. And, but he said, Brandon, two things. One, you got to have staying power in real estate. You have to have staying power. You better be prepared to hold on to something because when you can't hold on to a deal, first of all, that's your biggest issue. And he said, I also have a rule of thumb myself. This is him talking. And he says, you know, I only buy great deals, you know, because he said, great deals go to good deals good deals go to poo-poo you know like every deal gets a little worse at some point than you expect and it can get a little better too but but the idea is only going to the deal that you've worked and that and that and that you feel is going to be that great deal because when you're in that great deal you've got a little buffer zone to come down and not to but if you go into a deal that's kind of mediocre good bad okay whatever you know a good okay just kind of lukewarm and then it drops down a couple notches now that's that good deal going to poo poo right so anyway i just that always kind of stuck with me because that's like his thing like he's just like no nope, buy great deals because then they'll, they'll go to good i don't buy good deals they'll go to bad deals you know so absolutely and depending on what asset class you focus um on you know rather multifamily office you know traditionally you know the core assets are going to be your core your core plus you add value and opportunistic only focus on opportunistic development uh, which is ground-up development. And depending on your development strategy, uh, whether you acquire, you know, multifamily buildings and, you know, you still have to risk manage. And so and I go through a very detailed process, you know, from selecting why I select, what I call the discount rate, and uh, which sometimes people think they use that word interchangeably, the discount rate has saying the same thing as what they call your weighted average cost for capital. And I create a discount, but then my discount based upon uh, an analysis, based upon the market study and all the information that I've been given, and I do this with my team, with a highly skilled real estate financial analyst. And then I create what I call a risk adjusted factor that goes, the discount rate goes into that equation and out kicks the which is 
weighted average cost of capital or the risk adjusted rate. Uh, it could be sometimes called the hurdle rate because it's a hurdle you have to get over. Good. But it's really the weighted average cost of capital. Right. You know, and you wouldn't go do a deal, a five deal, when your weighted, your weighted average cost is seven. You just wouldn't do that deal because you're not even covering your cost of capital. Whatever you, you, you're doing, whether it's a ground up or whether it's, a, you know, you're buying an existing asset, you need to understand, you know, the market dynamics and you need to be able to weather, like your friend said, the long term in the event of, you know, whether it's just a normal real estate cycle or some sort of pandemic that can come a, can hit you. So you need to have a risk management plan in place a continuity plan in place and for every asset that you get involved with. Almost like a pilot, right? Don't pilots have a number of scenarios of things that they train for and they expect worst case scenario, you know, bad case scenario, worst, worst, worst case scenario, you know, whatever the, the this happens, I do this, this happens, I diagnose it three more ways I do that, you know? So it's kind of that same idea of not just having a plan A, but having a plan A, a B, a C, a D, and then backups to all of those and how you address scenarios. And, and that's and for, for a developer from ground up, it starts right off the top yeah. from your meeting with the city, with the community, the land that you're selecting, how you negotiate that contract, the timing of it, the amount of that, the economic, the back of the envelope to the detail, the cash flow, Excel spreadsheets, yeah. you know, the development team selection, you know, the entitlements you know, through construction, operation, uh, management, and ultimately disposition of the asset. Man, man. Well, Kevin, I, I know that, I mean, you and I could talk for hours and hours and hours. I know we don't have a ton of time, although there's like five, six, seven more things I want to ask you, but maybe we're, oh, we're going to do a second, but maybe we'll do a second uh, podcast for, you know, some of those other things. But, but one thing at least I want to bring up is, so, you know, the, the, the name of this podcast is High Stakes Deals. You know, it's, it's really to talk with, with fellow real estate guys and gals, uh, talk about how they got started, put in some personal spice in there. I think we've done that, which has been really cool. But I want to know, like, what's a, what's a high stakes deal, if you will, that you're, that you're either currently involved in, maybe it's the development of your Yak 80 program, you know, the deal meaning setting up this new program or a particular deal piece of land you're involved in right now, or maybe something you've been involved in the past that either went well or it went to, to crap fast. But what's a deal if you had to, if you thought you could share an interesting high stakes deal with our audience, they might get a kick out of it and, and learn a little something for, you know, five, 10 minutes here. Really, it's very simple. It, it boils down to understanding the, uh, and I'm speaking from a ground up development point of view, you really have to understand the economics, the real estate economics and how they all play out um, because your building is tied to it. The second thing I need you to, I would say would be high stakes is, is conducting and building uh, a development project without sufficient third party market analysis. I think you just set yourself up I mean, I don't have to say much. Just look around. Right. All the there's a lot of developers that that were very successful in the past, but COVID exposed them. So very important. You need to have a risk management plan. You need to really stress test your model, your 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 performer, and to be objective and not to be overly, I would say, overly uh, uh, ambitious on your objective model. Not trying to squeeze every dollar. 
my models that I run are untrended and untrended means they don't have any that uh, the normal growth, you know, two, three percent growth added on every year. So you really want to look at your model just, you know, stripped down, you know, and if it's able to stand robust without all the extra growth that typically comes with, you know, developers put on their annual NOIs, then you really stand yourself um, up to succeed. Uh, but if you're overly objective and ambitious about growth models because you're looking at, to your point, we just, we just discussed this, you know, you've seen that, you know, there are some markets where the growth rates as a result of COVID have been, man, I saw like six, 7% growth. Are you going to set your model to that? Right. I wouldn't. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't, to be honest, I would never, I wouldn't set my growth model, uh, nothing higher. I'll be just a little bit above below inflation. Right. And uh, so that's the second one. Uh, commodity is you got to have a risk management plan and the third uh, I would say you got to work you got to be a workhorse you got to be a Jerry Rice you got to be a Kevin Pratt you got to you got to work at it you got to study it you, know, you got to read you got to love it you got to understand what the what the market is doing on the macro level and in the community that you're going to be on a micro level that the community that you're going to be involved in you have to understand where the trends are going you have to you have to read I read a lot I do I have I, I I'm a part of a lot of different, you know, newsletters and publications because I want to understand what people are thinking, how people are doing, what other developers are doing. Mm -hmm. You have to be a student of the game and learn from those lessons, you know, those lessons learned. Do a lot of case study reading, you know, test things out. What I do all the time is I build ground up development from the model up. I said, okay, I'm in, uh, like, this week, I'm just going to just go pick up property that I like over here in Woodland Hills and I'm going to build it from scratch and I'm and I have this this criteria that I follow and I'm assuming I got consuming I got that I don't have this you know so I'm answering all these the yes and no's how do you think the market's going to be this next year I mean by the way I know most developers we don't really think in terms of years it's more like like hey how's it you know what's the what's the three five ten year whatever you know but you know for people listening rather that want a, a crystal ball everybody wants to know what's in that crystal ball nobody really has a crystal ball but what do you think 2021 is going to be like real estate market wise in general you think it's going to be a good year bad year you think the stock market i guess is is still booming right now i guess there's still a lot of people out of out of work maybe a lot of people still on on unemployment uh we just had an election there's a split congress uh maybe still i'm not sure there's still things coming back from that what do you think? Do you think next year is a really good uh, Sayonara 2020 and then like a, a new great real estate? Do you think it's going to be similar to how this year was? If, what would you say? Well, I would say it'll be different for different asset classes. Okay. Depending on what your, if you have market rate developers, you have affordable housing developers. Right. You know, you have office guys. And, you know, those can be, you can be, you know, in the downtown uh, New York or you can be the big, uh, the big box out there in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. I think it'll be different from, from different asset class, depending on what the focus is. But as an affordable housing uh, mixed-use developer, I think it's going to be exciting times, uh, especially for the millennials. Who's, a lot of them have moved back uh, with their parents. And well, when they move back with their parents, they're not going to be there forever. And that's a large portion. So that's going to create a lot of opportunity for new workforce uh, housing. 
uh, affordable housing in general, which is to me is, is the state most stable asset class. That you because can. when you can build right in the middle, you know, and a bit of quality asset right in the middle, even if you, you have significant drops in, uh, let's say in rent, uh, in a multifamily building, if you have a very high quality building, then you, you will attract the eight talent, those, you know, those individuals that were paying two or $3,000, they'll come down, how'd you buy your building right. until things get better? So there's always, and you got the C class, you know, those that are making, you know, just below the B want to come up because the buildings are so nice and they don't want to be in 30-year-old buildings. So I think for the affordable housing market in general, it's going to remain robust. It's going to be very strong. I think in terms of mixed use, which I focus in, uh, the retail aspect of it, more so on the mom and pop businesses, uh, they've shown, uh, but just looking at a study, they have been resilient through the COVID. They have been, you know, been the ones rolling up the sleeve because they don't want to go out of business. And, and people thought that it would be, you know, the big tenants, the, the, the more commercial tenants, the larger tenants. Right. And uh, uh, that would not be paying. Right. But it's turned to find out that those are the ones mm -hmm. that are not paying. Yeah. The amount of pops are paying. So as a mixed-use developer, I would be looking at uh, bringing that talent into to the smaller spaces because they can they can become a, a, a excellent complement, you know, to you know the residents living on top, you know, having food service brought to them. There's a lot of different things you can do, and still uh, be COVID uh, respected. Right, Bob. You know, Bob sandwiches, Martha's dry cleaning. You know, Jerry's little market. You know whatever, Ralph suits, like, you know, I don't know. But, but the point being that, like, maybe those are the, they give character to the neighborhood anyway. And I think, yeah, and I think a lot of millennials and, and non-millennials kind of like that. We've all been sort of desensitized from the big box stores anyway. There's been so much, so many years since, like, the 90s when all the targets and everything came out, you know, and it was just, like, everything had to be this big, giant Target or Walmart or, or shopping mall or, I don't know, whatever. Yeah. I would agree with that. And, Kevin, I want to ask you one more kind of big picture question, right? Where do, you, where do you see yourself 10, 15, 20, whatever amount of years from now? But let's just say, let's say 10 years from now. Where do you see yourself and, um, and, and what do you hope to accomplish big picture in that time frame? I mean, where, what's, your, what's, what's your life look like, your business 10 years from now? Well, I think in 10 years from now, I would... The goal, being very humble, is that I would have thousands of units, would have uh, design built thousands of units that meet the target, what I call remember, the depth, the depth 4.0 uh, model, you know, probably having over, you know, 10,000 units built and probably another 20,000 in the pipeline as well. I'm looking at creating a, a modular factory so I can help employ a lot of those, you know, the you know, workers who don't need to be uh, skilled to contribute to the society and providing a, a much needed need, which is housing for the greater, for the greater humanity. And so I just see uh, Yak 80 being a uh, achieving Super Bowl championship like the 49ers, you know. That man. Yards after catch, Super Bowl champ. Yards after catch, man. Come on. Look at Come on. Get it. I, hey. I hope you'll let you'll let you know me and Ivano build some of your buildings. I mean, hopefully, 
right there with you, right, man? Absolutely, man. I love that. I know, man, you guys do some great work over there. I love that, Alvano. That guy's, man, he taught me a lot. Just said, well, yeah, this little family space. Wow. Well, see, and that was what I was going to say. I couldn't let you get out of here off this podcast without plugging us selfishly for a second. But, uh, you know, you think people should check uh, Inland Builders out, Brandon and Ivano? Should they, should they give us a chance to build their uh, projects for them? Oh, absolutely. You know, Ivano is a beast. This guy, he takes the industry to another level. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's got 30, 40 years experience. And you and I know because I was with him. Yeah. And we were evaluating a piece of land out in the desert, in the high desert uh, out here in Coachella Valley. And the way he dissected what, how a single family developer needs to be thinking about if you're gonna take on, you know, an 85 unit subdivision, the things that he, that he uh, showed and demonstrated, uh, cause I don't, I, you know, I'm not a single family, I'm not in that space, but I became, you know, very knowledgeable. And I can, you know, uh, I, I would feel confident if someone was to ask me to, to help with uh, building a community, you know, uh, 30, 40, 50 units, because I, I would have the, uh, the master there to, to draw from. And he, and, and he can, can tell you that before you get started, you know, you, had 80, you gotta be thinking about 80,000 a unit. Mm-hmm. Just in your cost, you yeah. know, so just so he can really, you know, maneuver and understand the building. And I think, man, look, if I was a, a developer interested in a single family, I would hug, hold on. I'd be sleeping on the doorsteps. <laughs> in the <movies. laughs> I tell you. <laughs> oh, man. Well, listen, I appreciate that, man. I have tremendous respect for you. I know Ivano does as well. We want to do some deals with you. We're looking forward to maybe we'll come out to Vegas and build some projects with you out there. Maybe maybe bust our arm and 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 also give us the opportunity to look at some modular uh, uh, space type stuff. So, yeah, and actually, most importantly, I hope you come back on the podcast. Maybe in another you know a couple dozen episodes. I'm just kind of getting this thing going. I'm trying to get real estate people talking, but I'd love to do a second conversation with you at some point. Oh, man, I'll, I'll be anything you need, Brandon. I'm here for you, man. May, maybe even in person. We'll get out oh, down here to Beverly Hills. We'll have a nice lunch. We'll do a little little talky-talky and, you know, see where it goes from there. Man, I'll be ready to rock and roll. You just called me. I'm there for you, pal. You keep hey, doing man. a great time. I, I know you're ready to roll anytime. Like last time I said, hey, can you meet us in Palm Springs? I'll be there tomorrow. So. I'll be there too, man. <laughs> anything that would develop it, man, I want to be there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I appreciate that, Kevin. It was very nice chatting. We'll talk here real soon. And uh, this is uh, a wrap for the High Stakes Deals podcast.